We've taken a quick break from the book of John. We've been in the series called Behold Your Lamb, but we've taken a detour. And the reason we've taken a detour is because we're focusing on some areas where I think it's very important to have clarity. And those areas are really twofold. What is the gospel? And we should be able to define the gospel in a sentence or less. Jesus Christ died for your sins and rose again. That's the power of God to salvation for everyone who responds, the biblical response, which is faith. And that's the other thing that we're clarifying is what is the gospel response? And so we've been looking at very common gospel response cliches that are used in our day, but surprisingly, although they're common, they're not biblical. So what we're doing is we're really, I want to say, we're trying to slice the bread a little bit thinner during this series. We're trying to just get your mind thinking because there are certain things that we tolerate in church and Bible teaching that we would never tolerate in real life in terms of what words are synonyms for one another. Oftentimes have this tendency because we've heard it our entire life, we just accept it. And, and we'll do that unless someone challenges our thinking. This is that type of series where I wanna just challenge our thinking. And the reason is not because I can be a semantical police. I'm not trying to get everybody to just say the right words and say the right ditty and just, we, we all dance the same way and we, we put our right foot in and we put our left foot out like the spiritual hokey pokey. That's not what I'm interested in. Honestly, I, I, my heart before the Lord, I want Jesus Christ to receive the full credit and the full glory and the full honor that he deserves for what he accomplished for each one of us. The problem with these false gospel response cliches is they bump the spotlight off of Jesus Christ. And quite frankly, I'm tired of doing that in my life. You know, I make decisions on a weekly basis that bumps my eyes off of Jesus Christ and it doesn't turn out well when I do that. And I would imagine there's some amens out there in your hearts and you say, yeah, that's probably true of me too, right? We wanna keep the spotlight on Jesus Christ. It's gonna be there for eternity. Let's get a head start on it now, right? It's the spotlight's gonna be on him for eternity. Let's enjoy him now. So this is the point. When we talk about keeping the gospel response clear, the problem with a lot of these cliches is they talk about what you must do or continue to do to be saved. They put the spotlight on you. The biblical response of faith keeps the spotlight where God wants it. God is impressed with what Jesus Christ accomplished for you. Are you impressed? That's the question. Faith takes your eyes back to where God is shining his spotlight, which is the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So quick review. We've kind of talked about this already. What we've talked about is the gospels is subjective verifiable historical message based on facts that happen on a day in human history. It doesn't, it, it doesn't happen today. It already happened in human history. And see, this is the problem with religion. This is the problem with these false gospel response cliches. They operate in the wrong time zone. We've got basically three major time zones as we live life on planet earth, the past, the present, and the future. Religion wants to take your eyes and put something your eyes on something in the present, what you must do, and what you must do in the future. They want to have your eyes focused on the present and the future. You know where God's eyes is focused? On a day in the past. That's where we're to find rest. That's where we're to find enjoyment. That's where we're to find security because of what Jesus Christ accomplished for us. Religion always wants to bump that spotlight. You got to do this today and you got to do this tomorrow. And I'm just telling you the message of the Bible, this is what Christ did yesterday. This is what Christ did 2,000 years ago. This is what he did 
in the past. This is the, the focus of the gospel. God wants us focused on what he has already done for you. Religion wants to bump that spotlight, and we see that play through in some of these gospel response cliches. So the gospel involves the right person and the right work. We've talked about this. The right person is Jesus Christ, who's fully God and fully man. The right work is that he died for our sins and rose again the third day. We've talked about this often, but I just repeat this because I want this to sink in our mind. Why do we need the gospel? Why is this so significant? Why is this the only rescue plan that works? It's because of the perilous situation of our twofold problem which is we have a debt that we cannot pay. It's a death penalty. And we don't possess the level of righteousness needed to get enter heaven. That is a problem that no amount of works can overcome. No amount of effort can overcome. No amount of positive thinking can overcome. Death penalty requires not to be a smart aleck. It requires a death. Good works don't pay death penalty. Baptism doesn't pay the death penalty. None of these things shed blood which is the requirement for the remission of sins according to Hebrews 9.22. And so we get our eyes off of the very thing God accomplished to pay this death penalty, which is the finished work of Jesus Christ. His death in your place, God accepting his sacrifice for you. And how do we know that? He raised him again from the dead. He brought him back to life. And so the only solution we have is the gospel. And this is why the only response that's required is faith alone. See, faith is the only response that keeps my eyes on the spotlight of Jesus Christ. Everything else diverts my eyes onto something I must do or continue to do. So it's not about good works. It's not about committing your life to Christ. In fact, is it about committing your life to Christ or is it because Christ committed his life for you? Is it about you surrendering your life to Christ Or is it because Christ surrendered his life for you that he's able to offer you eternal life? You see how we flip this script? We have this tendency in religious circles to say the exact opposite of what we're trying to say. Go see how that works in any other relationship. Tell my wife, hey, honey, I hate you. But she should know I really love her, right? We just flip the script sometimes in these scriptures, and we want to point that out. And one of the reasons for that Faith takes God at his word. You know what Satan is trying to convince every man, woman, and child in this world of? That what Christ did was not enough. You gotta do a little bit more. Satan is even okay with the percentages, 99 and one. Christ did 99%, you gotta do your one. Satan's like hooping and hollering about that one because that's not the truth of the word of God. Christ paid 100%. You zero, you're trusting in his 100% effort and work on your behalf. And so Satan doesn't want you to know that it's finished, that Christ paid it in full, that when Christ died, he stamped that down. He basically threw down the gauntlet and said, I've paid it in full. And God the Father said, amen, three days later by rising him from the grave. That's the gospel message. That's who we're trusting in. And see, all of these false gospel response cliches, they don't want this. Well, conceptually they do. I think they're well-intentioned. Let's give them the benefit of the doubt. They want this, but what they end up with is this. They take the spotlight off of Jesus Christ and what he did, and they put it on anything else. Anything else but Jesus Christ, Satan wins. Satan distracts, Satan deceives, and there is a diabolical plot to blind the eyes of every man, woman, and child in this world from the simplicity that's in this message that Christ paid it all for you. 
And this is what he's trying to distract. And so there's many ways that the spotlight is being bumped just in the responses we give to the gospel. And when I say responses, what do you have to do to be saved? If you're going out with a friend this week that's a Christian friend, ask them this question and see what they say. These errors have permeated our culture. They have permeated, permeated every aspect of Christianity. We have then transported these false gospel response cliches to different countries through missionary work in Africa, in Europe, in India. And that's when I, when I go to Liberia and I talk to a pastor the first time I'm there and it says, what do you think it takes to be saved? And he's going to tell me you got to ask Jesus into your heart, which we're going to cover today. It's not even biblical. He's going to tell me you got to pray the sinner's prayer. He sounds like any American pastor and Bible teacher in the world that teaches that message because it's been transported. And I'm just going to posit to your thinking that that distracts us and it bumps the spotlight of what Jesus Christ accomplished. And quite frankly, asking Jesus to your heart is not the same thing as, as trusting in the finished work of Christ. It's not even saying the same thing. That's the problem. That's actually the bigger problem. So last time we looked at one of the ways the spotlight was being bumped was this phrase, give your heart or life to Christ. Again, we said, is, do you get saved when you give your life to Christ or because Christ gave his life for you? And we're like, I like the second one better. Yeah, you should like the second one better. That's biblical. This one's not. You can't even find this biblically. We looked at a second one last week. Believe and confess your sins. By the way, nothing wrong with believe. That's the response. But when you see the word and after it, got a problem. Your, your antenna should go up. Confession of sins, biblical phrase. But again, we looked at it last week. Is this what you have to do to get saved from the penalty of sin? No, this is a mechanism for the believer who's already in the family to be restored to fellowship. Not to be born into the family right? Not to gain a relationship with God for the unbeliever. And we started last week, and we're going to pick up here this morning, is this uh, false gospel response cliche of pray the sinner's prayer. Now, I would hesitate to ask this group, how many of you have prayed the sinner's prayer? My, my guess is it would be over 50%. And that's okay. Just kind of keep your hands down. We don't, need to <laughs> we don't need to raise it. Because this is a very common cliche. But as I said last week, one of the things that might blow your mind is, would it surprise you to know that there's no instance ever in the Bible of anyone leading somebody else in a prayer to get saved? Do you, would it surprise you to know that there's no instance in the Bible, a recorded example, of somebody saying a prayer to get saved? Now, you're like, man, are you just slicing this too thin? I don't think I am, and I'll tell you why I don't think I am as we kind of go forward. In fact, if you've ever read a sinner's prayer, you're going to see that none of them say the same thing. And you know why? Because there's not a source document for it. There's not a, there's not a verse you can go to for it. In fact, I, there was one evangelistic organization. I got four or five tracks from the same organization, four or five tracks, four or five sinner's prayers. They didn't even agree with each other, and they're, fr they're from the same publishing house. A different wording, different focus, different emphasis. And if I'm going to trust in the words of a prayer to save me, I want to know it's the exact biblical words. In fact, if it was that important, I'd probably memorize it in the Greek. I wouldn't even mess with the English translation in case I got that one wrong. I would memorize it in the Greek. The problem is it doesn't exist. That's the thing. What verse would anyone go to? And we're going to look at some verses that people might go to, but there's no verse that exists that teaches this as a response to the gospel. 
this might shock you too. You know that the presence of the sinner's prayer in church history is surprisingly absent before the 20th century? That means that when you go to books and you go to articles and you go to commentaries and you go to anything extra biblical about the Bible, it never even found its way into the writings or teachings of anyone prior to the 20th century. So are we to assume that if this is how you got saved, that nobody got saved in the first 19 centuries of history? That's absurd. That is absolutely absurd. But it's amazing because now if you don't include the sinner's prayer, you're, you're accused of spiritual negligence, spiritual malpractice. And I even had a guy say, well, if you don't lead them into prayer, how can they get saved? And a guy tell a, a friend of mine that, and also I've had people tell me that, well, if you don't lead them in prayer, how do people get saved? That's a great question. Let's go to the Bible. You trust in the finished work of Christ. That's how you get saved. It's real simple. It doesn't have to involve uh, a prayer. By the way, is prayer bad? No. <laughs> Please don't hear me say that prayer is bad. But I don't want people trusting in a prayer. That bumps the spotlight for G- from Jesus Christ. I want people trusting in Christ and his finished work. That's what we should want. Because in 20 years, when they look back and say, why are you saved? They're still gonna be talking about Jesus and what he did for them. Not like people who pray a prayer that say, oh, are you saved? Yeah, I got saved five years ago. How'd you get saved? I prayed the prayer. The prayer. Like it actually exists somewhere. They define it with a definite article. They say, oh, I prayed the prayer. And the question becomes, well, what are you trusting in? Jesus Christ or your prayer? And for many people, that... That's a mind-blowing question because they've never considered it and they are trusting in a prayer or repeated words that they said instead of the Savior who died for them and rose again. So we just want to challenge our thinking to think more biblically. By the way, praying a prayer is asking God to do something for us in the present. And again, what is God pointing our attention to? Something he's already accomplished in the past. That's where he wants our trust. We're not asking him to do something now. We're trusting in what he's already done. You see the the distinction there in terms of language. So let's look at a couple of biblical passages that are, that are often cited. Turn with me to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. And this is the, the story of two prayers. It's the prayer of a Pharisee and the prayer of a tax collector. And so I've asked somebody for a verse sometimes, where would you go to teach the sinner's prayer? And some, someone has told me this passage, you should go here. This is where it's taught. Well, let's look and, and, and see this passage One of the things that we're going to see this morning is a lot of these passages involve the very words that are being used. Like this involves prayer, clearly. But the context is going to show us that this is not a salvation from the penalty of sin passage. That's not what the the design of this passage is in terms of what it's designed to teach. Let's go Luke 18, starting in verse 9. Also, he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. It's interesting as he's praying thus with himself and he talks more about himself than God in his prayer. Not, Not a good game plan for prayer, by the way. Verse 13, and the tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, 
and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And so we see this, this parable that Jesus communicates. And the key to understanding this passage contextually is actually verse 9. One of the things that, that we see in, in parabolic um, language in the New Testament is one of the things we've got to understand um, with the, the genre, if, if you will, of parables is this. Parables are illustrations or examples that are designed to be brought alongside of a truth to communicate that truth. So parables typically, there's some exceptions, but parables typically have one major truth or one major principle that they're trying to communicate. Now, oftentimes you'll have to read through a parable, kind of try to get the summary point and try to decide what that is. But this is what's great about this passage. You don't even have to wonder because Jesus tells us exactly why he's giving this parable in verse nine. And notice what it is. Notice what the issue is. It's not prayer. What's the issue? It's trust. Watch. Verse nine, also he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. By the way, who's the target audience of this parable? Is it uh, the tax collectors of the world? No, it's the Pharisees. He's trying to challenge their thinking because they're trusting in themselves for righteousness. So this isn't a mechanical formula on how to get saved. He's telling them, you're trusting in your own righteousness. You need to trust God for your righteousness. That's the point. He uses this to illustrate that point. See, these Pharisees, they were pretty proud of themselves, weren't they? They had this ability to keep the law meticulously. Notice how he stood and prayed thus. And notice that phrase. It's so embarrassing. He prayed thus with himself. Like God didn't even need to be a part of his prayer. He's just kind of praying about himself and how great he is. And, and I'm surprised at the end of his prayer, he didn't say, now, God, aren't you impressed with me? You know, he's just talking to himself is basically what he's doing here. In contrast to the Pharisee, though, what did the tax collector do? He wasn't depending on himself for righteousness, his righteous standing for God. In fact, he had a clear understanding of his own unworthiness. He wasn't looking to himself for righteousness. And again, this goes back to the main point of the parable. Again, that primary principle that he's driving forth, don't trust in yourself for righteousness. That's the primary principle that we see here. And the prayer simply reveals where the tax collector's trust was. It wasn't in himself. It was in God. That was where he was looking to for his righteousness. And we got to see that. How did Jesus illustrate what they were trusting in? It was through their prayers. That's how he illustrated what and who they were trusting in. So this is not a, a passage that's teaching that you must pray a prayer to get saved. You know, in fact, I heard a pastor one time. It's a, to me, this is a tragic story, okay? It was a pastor who had a, a family grow up in the church. They were part of his founding members. One of their sons, grown sons, when he got of age, he went and pursued the homosexual lifestyle, rejected Christianity. And he lived in that lifestyle for some 30 plus years. So this is like 30 or 40 years later, this family's still part of his church. That grown son has been a prodigal. Well, finally, that lifestyle caught up to him. He contracted AIDS and he was in the hospital dying. And the mom and dad came to the pastor and said, would you go visit our son in the hospital? And this is the pastor recounting the story. So he went to visit the young man in the hospital and the young man saw him and said, pastor, I'm so glad you're here. I am so ashamed of the lifestyle. I now know that I'm wrong. Is there any hope for me to go to heaven? And I just shudder at what he told him. He said, well, you can pray the prayer of the tax collector. 
be merciful to me, a sinner. I don't know if he will be, though. He turned around and walked out of the room. That's a day that I wish I had a time machine. I could have gone in right behind him and just say, you know what? I've got good news for sinners. (laughs) And the good news for sinners is that Christ has died for your sins. You don't have to pay the penalty for it. Will you trust in Christ alone? If you do, God wants to give you eternal life. He wants to forgive you of your sins. Will you take that deal? Trusting in him, accepting the free gift of salvation by faith. See, this is not a prayer to get saved. That is a misuse of this passage completely. There's another one. In fact, turn with me to Romans 10, 13. Again, just looking for scriptural proof where this might be biblical. A lot of people will turn to Romans 10, 13. And again, it's, it's not to be critical. It's not like they're totally out to lunch. They're seeing the word prayer. They're seeing the word saved. They're, they're trying to put this together. But again, context oftentimes will clear this up. We see in Romans 10, 13, it says this, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And quite frankly, if you just quote that verse, it seems like a pretty compelling argument that you got to call on the name of the Lord in prayer to be saved. I mean, am I, is it, am I right? It looks pretty clear that that's what it's teaching until you start getting into the context. Now, we're going to get into the full context of Romans 10 in a later message, probably next week or maybe the week after. So I'm just going to introduce some concepts uh, of the context because I think it helps clear us up pretty good. Notice again, Romans 10, 13 gives calling on the name of the Lord as a prerequisite to be saved. The key question in any Bible study, let me just put this out here if you've never heard this before, is when you see the word saved in the Bible, you should always follow up the question saved from what? Always follow it up. The word saved does not have a technical meaning in every passage that it's used in the Bible. Most of us see the word saved and we automatically, because of the culture and it's totally fine, we automatically say, oh, saved from hell. We automatically think saved from what? Saved from hell. We always see the word saved in that way. The problem with that is when you study the Bible, you're gonna see that not only have we been saved, this is how we talk, from the penalty of sin, but that we are being saved in the present from the power of sin. That's the source of sin in our life. That's called sanctification. The Bible speaks of it as being saved, but from the power of sin. And then we will be saved in the future. That's called glorification, saved from the very presence of sin. The Bible talks about all these aspects of salvation. It also talks about physical salvation. When Peter was walking on the water out to Jesus, he started to sink in the water and he said, Lord, save me. He wasn't praying the prayer of salvation. He wasn't looking to be saved from hell. He didn't want to drown. He's save me physically. So you, we've got to go to the context. We've got to determine what are we talking about being saved from. And what we're going to see in Romans 10, and I would make an argument based on the verses that Paul quotes in Romans 10. You're going to see, in fact, if you just look at your Bible really quickly, you're going to see a lot of italicized words in Romans 10, 1, all the way, real, actually through the whole chapter. Just look, just glance at your Bible real quick. Romans 10, look at all the italicized words. You know what that means? He's quoting from the Old Testament. And anytime a biblical writer quotes from the Old Testament, what is it our responsibility to do? It's a lot of work sometimes. We need to get the context of the Old Testament verse that he's quoting, the context of that passage, to see why he's bringing it into play in this passage. What's the reason? All of that coming together, you're just going to, I'm going to, it's one of those uh, famous last words of a fool. You're just going to have to trust me on this context 
because we don't have a lot of time to develop it today. But if you're around next week, we'll, we'll take more time to do so. One of the things that you're going to see, Romans 10, 13, it's a quotation of Joel 2.32. When you go to Joel 2.32, you're going to see that it's in a eschatological context, big theological word that means end times. Tribu- think tribulation. Think kingdom. Think that type of scenario in the future, okay? The 70th week of Daniel heading into the millennial kingdom. So what I would venture to say, and, and here's why we'll make the argument some more next week. If the salvation Paul's referring to here, I believe it's salvation from the great tribulation period into the kingdom. That's the salvation that he's speaking of right here. In fact, is calling on the name of the Lord, is that how you're saved from the penalty of sin? Well, check out verses 14 and 15. And notice the word order. We actually got to work backwards here. It says, how then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? And then as it is written, how beautiful of the feet are those. But did you notice the order there? You you have to kind of work backwards. Here's the order. I'll just put it. A messenger sent, the messenger preaches, the audience of the messenger hears the message. And then what does the audience do with the message? They believe the message. And then they do what? Then they call on the Lord. See, you don't call on the Lord in this passage until you first what? Believed in him. And so now we have a problem because if someone were to come to this passage and say you're not saved from the penalty of sin until you call on the name of the Lord, then you're telling me someone believed in him and didn't get saved? Now we got a problem with 160 verses in the New Testament that give faith as the only prerequisite to be saved. See how it creates more problems? So context is king. We've got to really consider the context here. We'll do so more in the future. So again, by the time someone calls upon the Lord in this passage, they've already been saved from the penalty of sin because they've believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's exactly the order that we see given there in Romans 10. And so what does this passage mean? Really simply, because they believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, they're now going to call upon him to save them from what? Well, to deliver them physically from the persecution of the Antichrist, his armies, and the horrors of the tribulation judgment. They're calling on Jesus Christ to save their life so they won't perish physically and lead them into the kingdom. And so again, bear with me. I know that was kind of a trust me moment, but we'll, we'll try to go in more detail next week or the week thereafter on this particular context. So this is not a passage, as we can see, that teaches you how, that you've got to pray to go to heaven or pray a prayer. The next false gospel response cliche is going to be tough for some of us to hear. Um, I grew up with this. This was, this right here was the heart of what I understood in terms of what it is required to be saved, that you've got to ask for forgiveness. You'll hear this a ton. You may even kind of gravitate toward this thinking that this is what you've got to do. I want to just challenge your thinking and just ask this question. Would it surprise you to know that there's only one verse in the Bible that even remotely alludes to this, asking for forgiveness, and it's not even used in a salvation context. The way it's used in our culture, you'd think it was on every other page of the Bible, in every other chapter of the Bible. And I want to just show how, how this, it, although it, it, it expresses a positive volition toward the Lord, I will give you that, it's like, man, I, you know, I want God to forgive my sins. So it's expressing a positive volition 
But I want to show how asking for forgiveness is actually a subtle form of unbelief. It's the exact opposite. Again, we're playing opposite game here. We're flipping the script here. And I want to show you what I mean by that. One of the things that you're going to see with asking for forgiveness is it really boils down to, I think, this main question is this. How does somebody receive forgiveness of sins? Biblically, how does that happen? What does somebody need to do to gain the benefit of forgiveness of sins? Is it when you ask God for it, or is it when you simply put your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ? What does the scripture say? You'll never find a verse that says asking God for it will give it to you, except for the one we're going to look at, and we'll talk about that context. You never find it. But you know what you find throughout the Bible? A very clear statement of how you receive forgiveness of sins in Acts 10.43. To him, all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. You know why that's so important? It's because we're trusting in the very one that paid the penalty for our sins. So he is able to take those away. This is actually what makes what John the Baptist said in John 1 so significant because he's looking at the very man who was promised from all the way back in Genesis 3.15 that was gonna take away the sin of the world. And there he was walking on a street right in front of John. He said, that's him. That's the one who's gonna take him away. This is what's so significant about this. But we don't get asking for forgiveness. In fact, they're asking and believing are not even synonymous terms. When you ask somebody, someone for something, it implies the answer is in doubt. It could be yes, or it could be no. Do you, do you know that? Just by implication and the meaning of the word, when you ask somebody, the answer could be yes or no. If I were to ask you to mow my lawn today, I would love if some of you would say yes, but I would venture to say most of you would say no. But I'm asking because I don't know what your schedule's like. I don't know if you like me, really, and maybe you just kind of pat me on the back at church. You probably don't want to help me too much. I don't know if you got something else going on. I don't know anything. The answer is in doubt. That's why I'm asking the question, because you could say yes or no. One other point. Asking someone for something implies that the work or action still needs to be done. So use the same lawnmower example. If I ask you to mow my lawn, what is, by implication, am I telling you? The lawn hasn't been mowed yet. It still needs to be mowed. So not only is the answer in doubt, but I am basically admitting that the work hasn't been done yet. And so let me kind of develop this on a, on a practical level here some more, and then we'll kind of transition to, to uh, spiritual things. Dad, can I have the keys to the car? By the way, kids, that answer will always be in doubt. It could be yes or no. Always could be in doubt until you own your own car, Right. But in this case, dad says, yes, here they are. And what has he done? He's executed the work that they've asked him to do. He's given them the keys. Ah, hallelujah. Now I've got the keys. Dad, um, can I borrow some money? Again, answer potentially in doubt. I hope my kids are listening to this. The answer in our household is always no to that one. Just kidding. I, I do say yes once in a while. But this time the dad says, no, you cannot. Okay? Non-executed work. In other words, he didn't provide the work that the kid asked him for. He didn't give him the money. Go on and on. Friend, can I stay the night at your place tomorrow? Sure, here's the key to my front door. Executed work. Will you help me change my flat tire? Uh, I would love to, but I'm already late for work. So the answer is no, the work has not been done. Okay, so we're, we're seeing this concept 
come in. So let's transfer now to the spiritual. And let's apply the same line of thinking to this gospel response cliche. In contrast to asking, biblical faith implies what? A work has already been done. You're not asking God to do something that he's already done. You're trusting in what he's already done. That's what biblical faith implies. Belief or faith, trust in a known outcome, whereas asking for someone implies an unknown outcome. When you ask God to do something that he already did, you're putting his, his willingness to do what he's already done in question, almost by asking him. And so again, we are resting in something that's already happened. We're not hoping that he'll do something in the future. We're trusting in what he's already done in the past. And so you can see that these do not say the same thing. Asking God at some level has implied doubt. And so this often used cliche is really a a subtle form of unbelief and not faith. It's very subtle, but the point is this, uh, and it may hit hard, by the way. It may be hitting some of us in this room hard or some listening online hard. And I I understand it hit me hard when I started to kind of think through the implications of this because I grew up with this. But I also want you to consider the negative outcomes of this thinking. See, this is, this is what happens. Many of us are on the front end of this cliche. Some of us have never had the benefit or the, uh, the privilege or the tragedy of being on the back end of this cliche. When I've literally sat across from, I don't know how many people in my lifetime in tears because they think they're going to hell. Because they think they can't even go to sleep at night because they're afraid they won't wake up. They don't want to drive their car to work in fear that they get into a car accident that will send them to hell. And you know why they're so fearful? And you know why they're such in tears? Because they believe that you have to ask for forgiveness to get saved. And they think if they don't get home in time to ask for forgiveness at night, and they don't get that in before they die, that they're going to go to hell. And you know what? It's tragic to me because the work's been paid. And you see how this Little cliche that we're like, oh, what's the big deal? It bumps the spotlight for Jesus Christ, and it is a big deal for a lot of people. Because this is exactly how people think. If I don't get home in time, if I don't get it to my bed in time, if I don't get to ask for forgiveness before I'm saved, then I'm going to go to hell because God won't forgive me. I got better news than that. God paid it all on a day in human history. Your sins don't have to send you to hell. You have a Redeemer who bore all of your sins in his body so that you wouldn't have to. And all you have to do is trust in him, not ask for forgiveness tomorrow, trust in what he did 2,000 years ago. You see the difference? It has this incredible impact. One of the things you see and you receive one-time positional forgiveness of sins when you believe. And then you receive continual fellowship forgiveness of sins when you confess your sins. It's simply saying the same things. We're not asking God to forgive us even as believers. The response is not asking God to do something he says he wants to do. It's to basically come to him the way that we're at. He's asking us to come to him. As an unbeliever, by faith in the finished work of Christ, as a believer through confession of sins, he wants to restore you right back to fellowship. God is willing. Let's not put him in a situation where he's like, why are you asking me this question? I've already told you. I want to provide that for you. So we're just learning, I think, in this area to walk by faith. So again, God has determined how, when, where, by what means he wants to provide the gift of salvation. Now, one of the passages that comes up, and let's go there. It's going to be in Luke chapter 11, verse 4. And rightfully so, this verse comes up. But again, I believe the context is going to help us understand exactly what he's saying 
here in Luke 11.4. And this is uh, known as the Lord's Prayer. Many of you knew this, knew this growing up. I didn't actually, it's funny, I grew up in a Baptist church, and this isn't a criticism of, of the Baptist church I grew in, grew up in, but um, I didn't actually learn the Lord's Prayer until I played middle school football, ironically enough. And so, uh, like, all the guys are saying the Lord's Prayer in middle school football. I didn't even know it. And, like, most of my teammates didn't even go to church, and they knew the Lord's Prayer. I mean, it's a pretty commonly repeated prayer. And obviously, you've got uh, a different, uh, a couple of accounts, but in the Luke account, let's read verses one through four. It says, now it came to pass as he was praying in a certain place when he ceased that one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John also taught his disciples. So he said to them, when you pray, say, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us day by day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. There's that phrase. So it's, it's used right there in, in Luke eleven four. For we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. How, how, how can I be so sure or why would I even take the view that Luke is not teaching unbelievers how to get saved here? And it all has to do with the context. It all has to do with the context. In fact, notice this. The prayer starts with what? Our Father. It, it's, it's, a, uh, it's already relational. It's indicating that those who are praying this prayer are what? Already in the family. They're not praying to get into the family. They're not asking them to forgive their sins to get into the family. They're already in the family. It's indicated by this phrase, our Father. And, and so it's not a prayer of salvation or, or asking him for forgiveness uh, to get saved. Right off the bat, we can see that. The other thing contextually that I think is very important, and you, you probably picked, I mean, you just pick it up as you read through it, you know this prayer. This prayer is very much looking forward to the establishment of God's kingdom reign on earth through the Messiah. This is a very kingdom-oriented prayer. It's focused on a specific time frame in biblical history, which we believe is still future. It was future to them then, but it's also future to us. But one of the things we've got to understand about Jesus's ministry is at this point in his ministry, before the corporate rejection of him by the nation of Israel, he was offering the kingdom to that nation. Now, there's a lot of implications that come out of that. We don't have time to discuss those today, but he's offering the kingdom. So he's teaching them how to pray. And they're praying in an anticipatory way that God would establish his kingdom. His king is here Let's get this thing going is kind of the idea. Man, let's get this thing rolling. I want this kingdom to roll in because they've read about it in the Old Testament. It's gonna be a time of tremendous and unparalleled blessing, okay? And so this is the context of the prayer. Now, before we get into a little bit more of the context, the word forgive is very important to understand here as it relates to this context. We, t- we toss it around, which is great. It's one of my favorite words. But oftentimes we toss it around without recognizing some subtle distinctions. The word forgive simply means to send forth or away or to let go from oneself or to dismiss from oneself. And I think this is absolutely key context. Why does Jesus have them ask for this in this prayer? And one of the things you'll notice is in the study of the Old Testament that sin was atoned for or covered. That's very important to understand the distinction. Sin was never taken away or forgiven. We understand that. God would speak of forgiving their sins, but it was always future. The Hebrew word is salah, and it's used mostly in the future tense in the Old Testament. He spoke of a day in the future where sins would be forgiven. 
What day could he possibly be looking forward to? Well, it's the day that our Savior climbed a hill. It's the day our Savior was nailed to a tree. It's the day our Savior bore your sins on his body and he died the death that you deserved. And he took away your sins because they were placed on him and he paid the consequence in your place. That's the day that God could legitimately send away their sins. And this is why what John the Baptist, I said earlier, said in John 129 is so significant. Behold the man, behold the Lamb of God who takes away, not just covers, he takes away the sin of the world. That's what's so significant here. And so what are these Jewish people looking forward to? They're looking forward to the day that their sins would be forgiven. Why are they looking forward to that? And I'll tell you why. Because it's mentioned in the new covenant. This is a blessing of the new covenant. Let me go there really quickly. And for time, I'm just going to read one verse, but you can see it. Jeremiah 31, 31. By the way, that's a great memory device. Where's the new covenant? Jeremiah 31, 31. 31, 31. You just kind of remember where it's at. But jump down to verse 34. Lots of worm cans we can open here, but we're going to try to stay focused. I'm going to try not to get distracted. Verse 34, no more shall every man teach his neighbor, every man, his brother, saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. What's he talking about? He's talking about forgiveness. He's talking about sending it away. That's going to be a benefit of the new covenant. This is why Romans eleven twenty seven says, for this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. He's talking about the nation of Israel here. Any Jew who believes the gospel in this dispensation possesses the forgiveness of sins the moment they believe. We're talking about when the kingdom starts. This is how he's going to take away or remove the sin corporately of the nation of Israel and the individuals that's responded to him. So very significant. So when they're praying in Luke 11, they're asking God to forgive their sins. And this is a question in line with promises that he's already made. When did he make this promise? Abrahamic covenant. There were three provisions in the Abrahamic covenants, land, seed, and blessing. He expanded on those provisions with three other covenants, a land covenant, the Davidic covenant, and then also the new covenant, which we just read about in Jeremiah 31. And basically he wants, they want God to establish his kingdom on earth, which would do what? Release the effects of the new, new covenant, which is forgiveness. This is why this is an appropriate thing to say in this prayer, in this appropriate context. It is not a method to get somebody saved from the penalty of sin. That is, to, it's just foreign to this context. Let's continue on. We've got one other cliche. I think we'll get started. We may finish uh, as well. This is one of the most common cliche. I think it's the most popular, the most common cliche that we use in our day. It's to ask Jesus into your heart. This, by the way, was, was not used uh, prior to a certain point in church history as well. This is kind of something that's been new, newer developed. Uh, again, this is one of those things that you almost can't go a day if you listen to, to Bible teaching, read books, whatever. You, you almost run into this all the time, especially if you've got gospel tracts that you see. Do you know that uh, one pastor estimated uh, that he had asked Jesus into his heart 5,000 times by the time he was 18 years old? He just kind of counted the number of Sundays because he did it every week. He counted the number of Wednesdays. He counted the number of nights he went to bed. And he had estimated he had done this 5,000 
times. In fact, again, anonymous survey, if I were to just go around this room and just ask if you've ever asked Jesus in your heart, my guess is over 50% of our hands would go up, mine included. And then if I were to ask you to keep your hands up, and if you've done it more than once, keep your hand up. I would, I'm not a betting man, but if I were, I would bet almost 100% of the hands would stay up. That's the problem with this cliche. You got no rest because you're focused on the wrong thing. Again, we bumped the spotlight off of the finished work of Christ. And now it's all about how did you ask Jesus in the heart? How did he, did he come in, et cetera, et cetera. There, there's all these issues with that. In fact, Awana, which is an organization that prides itself on gospel clarity, they did an interview with 18,000 pastors and Christian workers in their Awana system. And 13,500 of them, 75% checked the mark that they agreed with the gospel invitation right now, ask Jesus to come into your heart. And it's such a confusing cliche as we're gonna kind of see. By the way, does Jesus come in your heart when you get saved? He does. But it, he comes in when you believe, not when you ask him. That's foreign to the scriptures. In fact, I wanna look at just four reasons, although this will sound heretical, um, especially in our culture, four reasons to never ask Jesus in your heart. I've got a friend that wrote a booklet called Seven Reasons Not to Ask Jesus. So I summarized those into four. The first one, we really don't need anything more of that. It's never found in the Bible. So uh, close the Bible. let's close down this morning, right? It's, I mean, why do we need a reason even past this? It's never found in the Bible. You can't point to one passage. Now, we're gonna go to a passage that people point to Revelation 3.20, we're going to get there. That's the fourth reason. But you know that it's never found in the Bible, and nowhere in the Bible is anyone instructed to do this. It's also safe to assume that if you were on a deserted island with a Bible, and that's it, you would never come up with this as a response to be saved. Never come up with it on your own. You have to listen to Bible teachers. You have to listen to YouTube videos. You have to listen to Facebook. You have to go to Evangelistic Crusade. You have to read tracts in our modern day to even get this concept. But you can see, you know, you feel how much this has permeated our culture. It's incredible. And as I said, Christ does come into our, our heart, but it's when we believe, not when we ask him to. You know, second reason never to ask Jesus in your heart, it requires no understanding of the gospel to do it. In fact, you could ask Jesus in your heart, you can repeat this prayer after me and not even know that Jesus died for your sins and rose again. Not even make the connection as to why what he did is significant. Again, you know the gospel is that Christ died for your sins and rose again. You can ask Jesus in your heart with never even believing or know this. In fact, me personally in hundreds of conversations with people over the years who have given me this as how they got saved, asking Jesus in their heart, do you know that they never even mentioned Jesus Christ in his finished work? And these are some of the people, they'll, they'll get through this list of things. In fact, typically when someone's asked Jesus in their heart, they typically follow that, that up with, yep, and I teach Sunday school every week, and I give to the church, and, I, and they follow it up with all these good works, and I get down, down to the end of the list, and I say, oh, can I ask you a question? They say, yeah, sure. What about Jesus? And they're like, oh, yeah, him too, right? I, I've shared that before. And it's like, him too? <laughs> Him alone, right? I mean, isn't that actually the more accurate way to say that? So there's some confusion there. That's the whole point. And so there's quite a difference between asking Jesus into your heart and trusting in a finished work accomplished by a Savior 2,000 years ago. It's just, it's a world of difference. In fact, when you give people the biblical response of faith, faith in Jesus Christ begs the question, why him? 
Faith in Jesus Christ begs the question, what did he do? Faith in Jesus Christ begs the question, why should I entrust my eternal destiny to him? And what has he done to assure me that I can do that? See, it it drives you back to the spotlight that God wants to keep on Jesus Christ. That's why faith is the response of the Bible, because it coincides with the finished work. It's the only response that does. This distract. A third reason you should never ask Jesus into your heart, because it messes with your assurance. It either results in no assurance of salvation. This is why people do it all the time, 5,000 times at one pastor, or it gives false assurance. Oh, yeah, I'm good. I asked Jesus in my heart. Oh, yeah, I'm good. Now, by the way, has anyone been, been saved and asked Jesus in their heart? Yeah, because they trusted in Christ. That's how they got saved. They may have asked Jesus in their heart five minutes after that because someone told them they needed to do it, but they got saved when they trusted in Christ, not by asking Jesus in their heart. You can't find that biblically. That's kind of the, the point of the argument. And this response cliche confuses the means of salvation with the results of salvation. And so the, the, the response simply bumps the spotlight. Let me just kind of throw this out here. Um, as I've said, most people have done it more than once. It kind of shows that there's this lack of assurance. Most people wonder, did Jesus Christ really come in when I asked? That was me growing up. How do I know that he came in? I mean, I asked him. I, I thought I was sincere, right? But I, I don't know for sure. Many people ask, was I sincere enough when I prayed? Many people wonder, did I say the right words? Many people wonder, how do I know he came in for sure? I used to ask Jesus in my heart, and then two days later, I would commit a big whopper sin, and I'm like, I better do it again, just, you know, insurance purposes, you know, because I don't know, this, this didn't, I, I was a complete idiot today. I probably should do this again before I go to bed. And so there's this, all this lack of assurance, and by the way, why? Look where the spotlight just went. Look where this cliche takes our mind. Did I do this right? Did I ask right? Was I sincere enough? Did I give him my whole heart? Did, wait a minute, do I give him my heart or does he come into my, I, I'm, you know, and, and you just get confused, confused, confused. And that's because the spotlight, again, has been bumped. Now let's look quickly because we're running um, short on time. Let's go to Revelation chapter three and verse 20 because this is the verse that many people, if, if kind of pinned against the wall and said, where does the Bible teach us? They'll go to Revelation 3.20. All right. And so, I'm going to propose to you that Revelation 3.20 does not teach this gospel response. And so let's read it. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. So I would propose that this does not teach asking Jesus in your heart. In fact, if you look closely at verse 20, you're going to find that the word ask, Jesus, and heart aren't even in the verse. just, Just look. I mean, it's not... These three words aren't even in the verse that they say teaches this, which is mind-blowing, but let's keep going. Context, who's this written to? It's written to the church of Laodicea. He's not questioning their salvation. He's questioning basically whether or not they're walking with the Lord and yielding to him. He's calling out carnal believers. You can see that if you've got titles in your, in your Bible. He's, he's writing to, this is the seventh church that he's written a letter to, and he's evaluating their church. He's giving them correction on where they need to change their mind or change their activity. So again, he's not describing how an unbeliever gets saved here. He's giving a stern correction to carnal believers. 
By the way, if Jesus is knocking on a door, he's writing to a church, he's knocking on the door, what makes more sense in the context? He's knocking on the door of my heart or he's knocking on the door of the church? That makes more sense in the context. And if, you, if we had time to read through this passage, you would see this is a church that was doing church without Jesus Christ. So yeah, he's on the outside of the church knocking. How ridiculous is that? The head of the church outside knocking, trying to get in. Hey, can I be a part of what y'all are doing in there? Be a part of it. <laughs> we want you to lead it, right? But he's out there knocking. And so what happens when he knocks? Well, go back to the verse. He says, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, notice what it says, I will come in to him. Two words. Into the church, over to the individual who opened the door, who responded. Not into. You see the distinction there? Not into one word, in, over to the person that knocked. And what's the purpose there? It's not salvation, it's fellowship. He wants to sit down and dine with them. It's a, it's a fellowship concept, a first century fellowship concept. They were out of fellowship with the Lord. They were doing church without him. He says, look, I'm there at the door to knock. If you'll just allow me to come in, I want to come over and enjoy fellowship with you. I want to be a part of what you're doing. It's not a salvation context for an unbeliever. It's, it's a fellowship context for a believer. Now, let me make two more comments, and then we'll go. Um, and I'll try to make up some minutes next week. So just kind of hold me to that. Um, just real quick, though, because I think it's important. Many people will then say, well, but yeah, but this helps kids understand the gospel. You'll hear that. Like, this is what kids need to hear. I completely disagree with that. I used to be in the education field. I've studied this out. Kids, when they are young, they think concretely and not abstractly. That is how they are wired. That is how they grow up. They are concrete thinkers. This is an abstract concept to tell them to ask Jesus in their heart. And this is why many kids, when you tell them that, they will think that Jesus, the Son of God, somehow gets into their body, into the organ that pumps blood, and lives there. And this is why little kids will lay on their grandmothers during the church service, and they'll hear her stomach rumbling, and they'll tell grandma later, hey, I think I heard Jesus in your heart. He sounded like he was percolating coffee. Because that's how little kids think. They're concrete. They're not abstract. That's why a little girl in an Awana program, a leader, found her in the corner, standing in the corner with her mouth open. He thought, she's having a seizure or something. Something's wrong with this girl. He goes over, he checks on her. No, she's fine. What are you doing? I asked Jesus to come on. I'm just waiting for him to come in. Concrete minds. Are you telling me that kids can't understand the concept of trust? They can totally understand the concept of trust. This is not too hard for them to understand at all. In fact, that little girl right there, if she was scared to jump, her mom says, look, I'll catch you. No, I'm scared, I'm scared. She would say, trust me, I'll catch you. Rely on me, I'll catch you. And what the, what's the little girl gonna do? She sees mommy down there. Mommy's never done her wrong. She's gonna jump because she knows what trust means. This is what we need to communicate to our kids. There's a savior that loves you. There's a savior that doesn't want you to go to hell. There's a savior that did everything needed to take you to heaven with him. He died for your sins. Every wrong thing that you did, you can trust in him and he'll take you to heaven. How simple is that? Kids get that. Let's not complicate it with something unbiblical. And let me just share this last story, and then we'll, we'll close. I had a, a, a friend of mine who was a pastor. He had a, a lady in his church that was going to have a heart transplant. 
And uh, he meant to meet with her the day before the heart transplant. And um, she was very concerned, as you can imagine. It's a very serious surgery. I and mean, oftentimes hearts don't take to the new body. And so they're praying for her safety. And he's, he's trying to figure out when can he go see her and what, what are her wishes, you know, planning the funeral and just in case it didn't work out. I mean, lots of serious conversations there. But then one of the biggest questions on her mind because of this false cliche was this. Now, Pastor, I've got something that's really on my heart. She said, I'm getting a new heart, so when I get that new heart, do I need to ask Jesus into that one too to be saved? You see how just foolish this is? So these kind of unbiblical things that tend to confuse people, we just need to shed these from our vocabulary. Just keep with biblical vocabulary. Trust, rely on, put your faith in, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ who paid it all for you. Let's close there with a word of prayer. Lord, I am uh, very appreciative of what the Lord Jesus accomplished. We, again, we're not trying to, I hope our heart comes through here. We're not trying to be the grammar police. We are literally just trying to keep the spotlight on Jesus Christ, enjoy him, rejoice in what he accomplished for us. And so we pray that that was accomplished this morning. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.